Welcome to the Aristia podcast, where experts talk about excellence. Our podcast format includes a young professional early in their career, talking to an expert for academic and industry insights. At some point, we turn the tables around, where the expert asks the young professional about their agonies, dreams and aspirations about their field. In today's podcast, our young professional is Ivan Zarkadas, independent scholar in European history. And our expert is Alexandros Nehamas, professor of philosophy and comparative literature at Edmund Carpenter II class of 1943, also professor in the humanities at Princeton University. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Science, a member of the American Philosophical Society, and a member of the Academy of Athens. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Aristia podcast. Uh, I'm Evan Zerkadas. Um, and today I uh, will be speaking with Dr. Uh, Alexander Nehamas. Um, Dr. Nehamas was born in Athens, Greece. Um, he graduated from Athens College and uh, he moved to the United States in 1964, which he then attended uh, Swarthmore College and Princeton University. He's a professor of philosophy and comparative literature and the Edmund N. Carpenter uh, class of 1943 professor in the humanities at Princeton University, where he has taught since 1990. Um, he works on Greek philosophy, aesthetics, Frederick Nietzsche, Michael Foucault, and literary history. Um, some of his works uh, include uh, Nietzsche, Life as Literature, The Art of Living, uh, Socratic Reflections from Plato to Foucault, um, Only a Promise of Happiness, The Place of uh, Beauty in a World of Art, and On Friendship. Thank you very much, Dr. Nehamas. It is a great pleasure and honor to have you on our podcast today. Oh, the pleasure is mine, Evan. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being here. Yes, um, I would like to begin our conversation with the question of um, how do you define uh, aristia, the concept of aristia? Well, uh, I don't. Um, I think, first of all, it's very complex because what counts as excellence or aristia in one field need not carry over to other fields unless you define it in a question-begging way, namely doing better than everyone else. But what counts as doing better is different in each area that we are talking about. It seems to me that especially given how important the notion of Aristia has become recently in Greece, uh, starting with the discussion about whether it's a good or a bad thing to be considered an Aristos or Aristevon, uh, then with all the issues about the evaluation of uh, teaching that we have, uh, something that many people in Greece are very much against, uh, we should really be discussing what Aristia is and whether it's something that we can have a, a so to speak, a unitary approach toward. So say we are for Aristia or we are against Aristia, <laughs> or whether we should have a more nuanced, a more, as they say these days, granular approach to it and try to understand various ways in which people can be outstanding in the various fields and activities to which they devote themselves. 
Now, there is a sense in which, you know, the, the best people are the ones who do whatever it is that the field requires better than anyone else. But that's not very interesting, you see. What you want to become very specific, and to be specific, you have to talk about specific areas. So I'd rather not talk generally about Aristia. I would rather say, let's each one of us think about what counts as Aristia in our field and then see if we can make a generalization about it. In other words, I'm saying let's do it bottom up rather than top down. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I think I I believe when I when I was growing up in Greece there was this um I guess overarching approach to this uh conversation or from a political and social perspective if I can put it that way, yes. you know. Um, and it's hard to translate it sometimes to to the English language because aristia means more than excellence in in Greek. Well, it it means you know it means a kind of um, how shall I put it um, notoriety in in a good right. sense of notoriety, right? Aristia means that you are in the public eye because of what you do in your field, or if you're not in the public eye, you're in the eye of your field. For uh, being Aristos or outstanding or whatever, but you know right. there are there are definitely social and political issues involved with it. Um, you know you can see it in America, for example, in the question of whether SAT tests and all those multiple choice tests are weighted toward, so to say, uh, upper middle class whites rather than Hispanics or blacks or whatever you have. And I noticed it, for example, <laughs> maybe sounds stupid, but I noticed it in crossword puzzles, which I do a lot of, how many answers to crossword puzzles depend on, I do the New York Times puzzles. So the, how many of those depend on your being in New York, on you having had a college education, et cetera, et cetera. Somebody who can be extremely bright, but hasn't been educated in the best schools might not know many of the things. So much of our knowledge is socially conditioned. And I think that is something we always need to take into account when we're talking about distinction in general. I guess a more general um, way to, to begin this conversation is how did you, how did you end up um, in, <laughs> in, in, in your field? How did you start? How did I start? It's it's a it's a silly story in a way, but it's sort of not that interesting. Um, when I was in high school, I I was um, not particularly comfortable socially, and uh, uh, thinking, philosophy, or you know, intellectual issues were something I was relatively good at. So I paid attention to it because it was I I I wasn't that good an athlete. I mean, I was a discus thrower, but a very mediocre one. And I could never be very good in uh, football. Uh, I mean, I, was, I wasn't terrible, but I wasn't any good. So, you know, I was a good student. And one day I decided for some reason I wanted to learn modern Latin for some reason. So I took a copy of Spinoza's Ethics from the library, which had a, the Greek translation and the facing I mean, it had the Latin and the Greek translation facing it. And I didn't understand a word of it in Latin or in Greek or in anything else. So I thought, well, this is really difficult and complex. If I was good at this, I would be distinguished. <laughs> uh, 
On the other hand, the pressure in Greece at the time was to go into business, to become Onassis or Niarchos or something like that. So I came to America with the idea that I was going to do economics mm. and do a minor in philosophy and then one day retire on my yacht and have philosophical conversations. Well, it didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I come to this interview as a, as a failed ship owner uh, who uh, every time that he had to make a choice between going towards philosophy or towards business would always find a reason not to go towards business. And it was always a thing, let's wait another two years and then we'll see, or let's not go back to Greece right now. Let's get a PhD. But of course, I'm not going to teach. Uh, so I got the PhD and then, you know, I got a good job and I said, ah, I'll get the job and see what happens. Then I got tenure and I got terribly depressed because I realized that that was the end. There was no alternative career path any longer. And that's, in a sense, how I ended up. I mean, one way to describe it is that I fell back into it. Another way to describe it is that I always knew what I wanted to do, but I wasn't telling myself. So I made it so that at one point I couldn't not continue to do it. Anyway, right, that's, right. that's my story. <laughs> Two-way two approach, right, right. <laughs> I like that that part, the failed ship owner. Now. <laughs> yes. Well, it's true. I mean, there were many of us at the time who, you know, that was what the family and social pressure was toward. Was toward. Right. It was very, you know, it was a country in the 60s. Greece was exploding financially and economically. And there was a lot of money to be made if you're clever and well-placed. But, you know, I guess I was I, neither... Either I was not clever or not well-placed or neither one and I didn't do it. But I enjoyed uh, doing the philosophy part. I don't have any regrets at all. I know I know you're heavily influenced by Plato. Uh, and uh... Well, Plato's a great believer in certainty, though. It's yes, uh, yes. My, my, my other philosopher, Nietzsche, who doesn't. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about that. Uh, how did you, yeah. you know, start with you know, Plato and Nietzsche and how, how did, did your philosophical work... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a good, very, very good and complex uh, question. Um, Nietzsche, I read in Greece when I was growing up. And again, I didn't understand a word of it, but you had to pretend to know Nietzsche if you wanted to be an intellectual back in the 60s. You know, um, Plato, I read in, in, we read Plato in school, um, but it was terrible. I've been d discussing that uh, in the newspaper recently with um, um, a um, opinion writer from Kathy Merini about it. I'll tell you the basic, uh, the basic story that I tell about this. I was in the classical gymnasium of Athens College for all the, all, throughout my high school years. I was in the classical section. We did six hours of Greek, ancient Greek a week most years, at least five, if not six. And after six years of Greek, in our final year, we did 10 pages of Plato's Protagoras. We did Sophocles' Antigone without the chorolodes because they were too hard. And did Pericles' funeral speech oration from Thucydides. That's about 40, 50 pages mm. at most. And it was taught in a completely different way, in an inhuman way. Because we use the text in order to understand, the, to learn the grammar. We didn't learn the grammar in order to read the text. 
So we never understood what we were talking about. We never realized that Plato had interesting things to say because to us, Plato is just a source for learning about how to decline nouns and adjectives and how to conjugate verbs. So when I came to America, uh, I said, well, I'd better take some Greek because at least it's easy. I have all these years of practice and all that. After six years of Greek, where did they put me in America? It's worth me. They put me in the third semester because I had never learned how to read anything. And in the third semester, American kids were reading the Antigone, which I read after six years, with the Coralotes. And in our fourth semester, we were translating from English into classical Greek, which we never even thought of doing that. They're not just the things that we hate to do because, you know, it's so boring and, and uh, uh, pedantic. That's great stuff, great philosophy, great literature, great drama, great poetry. And that's how it sort of fortified me into what was already an inchoate decision to engage in philosophy. I ended up liking philosophers by and large who are good writers. And apart from Plato, who is the greatest, Nietzsche is another one. He's a great, great writer. And in a way, I've always been interested in art and, and uh, literature. So reading people like Nietzsche and Plato um, satisfies both my philosophical inclinations, but also my literary desires and interests, you see. So that's how I ended up with them. It's not easy because they are in so many ways opposite one another. Uh, so, you know, you're a Nietzsche in the morning and a Platonist in the afternoon. And in the morning, you think that Plato is the destruction of Europe and of the modern world. And in the uh, evening, you think that, uh, you know, uh, there's no one else other than Plato in the world. And you get very confused. And in a way, I mean, philosophy, um, uh, Aristotle says that philosophy begins in wonder. I wonder if wonder is a fancy word for confusion. <laughs> See, <laughs> that's the st state I'm generally in. <laughs> I think a lot of people will agree with you on that when it comes to <laughs> philosophical works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I kind of I kind of get a quick glimpse of, you know, the, this contradiction, as 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 you said, between these two um, influences that, that that you had on on your work and how they might have, you know, influenced your th thinking. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, what is I can't say in so many words what it is that I have learned from these people. Mm. You know, you can't, you know, what I've learned from these people is everything I've done. So, you know, there's no one sentence version of, of it. But what I learned from both is that in order to be a good philosopher or at least to be as good philosopher as I could possibly be, you need passion for the problems. Hmm. And you need to think that those problems have something to do with your everyday life. It's not a purely academic discipline philosophy, even though I think by and large, it has become primarily an academic discipline. In such a way, look, in ancient Greece and in Rome, if you're a philosopher, you're supposed to live your life the way that your philosophical theories 
implied one should live. Uh, and there were some well-known philosophers who did not have any particularly original ideas. You see, what they, they accepted the views of others, but managed to apply them very well in their life. So that was considered to be a major achievement. In modernity, in the modern world, philosophy has become just another academic discipline by and large, mm. which means that you can spend all your days, your weekdays, your working days, doing moral philosophy and deciding how well, what it is to live well, and not expect that this will have any influence on what you do the rest of your life. Right. You see. As I said, in, in, in the ancient world, to be a philosopher meant not only that you had views and theories about whatever counted as philosophical issues, but that those views and theories were the basis of how you lived your life. We've lost that. I don't think it's quite as easy to do it as it may have been done in antiquity, as it may have been in antiquity. I think the, the social world is extremely different. You know, I'm not saying, oh, well, let's all go and wear, to, uh, you know, hitones and, uh, you know, grow beards and, uh, you know, go around uh, like Socrates. Uh, but I do think that there has to be more of a connection between the two. You know, if you're a mathematician, you know, it's not clear that this can have any effect on your life. But if you're a philosopher and, and what you think has nothing to do with what you do, that seems to me um, a, a weak position to have, frankly. Right, right. I think it, it comes into, you know, from an philosophical perspective as well. Sometimes we we have these ideals and beliefs, but our actions don't really show them in many ways. Right. So, there are different ways in which it's happen. One of one of those one of the ways it can happen is what we call weakness of the will or acrasia, right? Where you hmm. know that doing one thing is much better for you than doing the other, and yet you do the other, right? So instead of studying, you go to the movies, you know, when you know that you should be studying. That's right. not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is having a complex view about what counts as a good life, but not having that view affect in any way the way you live. That, I think, is in a way an indication that the theory is not all that good <laughs> or that you are not consistent enough. Um, and philosophy can't be a complete way of life today, and I don't think it ever was. I think we are idealizing when we think of the... I mean, Socrates is one person who may have lived all his life of philosophy, but there are not that many people in the world who do that. Uh, and furthermore, even the ancient Greeks made fun of philosophers. I mean, if you read Lucian on the choices of life or whatever the philosophical uh, uh, dialogues of his, it's, you know, they, they, were, they could be very silly. And philosophers can be very silly. We are very absent-minded. Plato tells an anecdote, right, about Thales of Miletus, the first supposedly philosopher, who was looking up at the stars with such interest that he fell into a well. And uh, a, a young girl supposedly uh, saw him and started making fun of him. And Plato thinks that this is very funny that, you know, philosophers do up and they don't look what's in front of them, you know. Mm -hmm. So we tend to be very abstract, very distracted, abstracted. Uh, on the other hand, we deal with sometimes with important problems. We don't 
always deal with them importantly, <laughs> but we deal with important problems. Uh, or as when my son, when he was four years old, asked me, what do you do in philosophy? And I said, well, we discuss the most important problems. He said, you mean like soccer, like football? <laughs> I said, well, that too, but that's not one of our major. <laughs> How about you? I mean, uh, what do you think Aristia is? After all, you left Greece. You, like me, you're a Brooklyn, as they say. Uh, we have spent, I would say, longer than you, but we've spent a significant part of our lives in America, away from our home. Uh, how do you see your own uh, sort of effort? What did you want to accomplish? And do you think you're getting there? Well, Once, uh, I, I say one more thing. I think you are much less lucky than my generation was. Hmm. My generation came in when everything was opening up. There were jobs, the economies were uh, all over the world were going, were doing well. I mean, not it wasn't a perfect period, but we didn't really worry about where we'd find a job or whatever. I think for your generation, things are much, much worse. And I'm very interested to see how you react. How do you deal with that? It's very right. vague what I asked you, but you can, you know, I'm very interested. No, I, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for the question. I think because of what you mentioned, and thank you for bringing that up, um, it, I think Aristia, in many ways, because of these circumstances that my generation and many generations probably before me um, is are finding, are finding ourselves in, Aristia becomes competition in many ways. Um, oh. Who's going to do the most impressive things to show off so you can have a job? Um and then there is, comes this uh, struggle between, okay, there's, uh, in, in my opinion, there's a moral aristia, and then there is uh, the aristia that you can show on a piece of paper. Um, exactly. And I think, and I think Already that's we where, have two different versions, yeah. Right, right. And everybody has their own in many ways. But for me, it's, it's those two. Uh, there is the aristia that might not be valued in a job interview. Uh, and then there's the aristia of academics or community service, whatnot, uh, could be valued uh, when it comes to a job. But uh, there's other forms of aristia that you go through my life, for, 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 for example, that uh, um, are, you know, coming in contrast uh, with this world of competition. And I have seen that coming from Greece. Um, I've 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 tried to um, look up to the ideals of where I come from. My mm -hmm. identity was more shown when I came to America because you know I'm from Greece. I I grew up with this uh, this history, these ideals. Um, so it, it was kind of like a challenge of trying to live up to that. Um, and a lot of things were shattered in many ways uh, when I learned different perspectives, different opinions, different viewpoints. Uh, from what I was taught, um, hmm. so I think I think it, I, I think it's a it's a bit of a, um, a struggle between these two levels, um, and I, I guess it can go back to Nietzsche, you, you know, the the morality, the goodness in it, um, and where do we go from there? Well, how do you feel about having left Greece? I mean, do you think that you found opportunities here that you might not have found there, or uh... one thousand percent? 1000%. Really? I don't know what the underlying 
issue is, um, and uh, I think the wave of immigrants that left Greece since the early 2000s, I want to maybe put it, um, and even earlier, I think it speaks on for for itself. Um, mm. I think that the opportunities when you leave Greece, and I know it, it might sound a little bit, you know, anti um Greek progress in many ways, but I personally did not see did not see that when I was there. Uh, when you I didn't came see here, what when did you, you didn't see what value or 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 a future in many ways. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. um, I left during the economic crisis, um, right. and I uh, think uh, I think whatever was happening in Greece at that point really influenced me um, and how I see that. Would you consider going back? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I had been asked that question at your age, I would have said no. Now yeah. I want to say yes. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. I think yeah. that's what I'm going to put it. I, I do not know. I'm, I'm very um, split in half about that because Greece is it's still my home, but I've kind of developed a second home. So um, it is yeah. this this country does do that, at least mm -hmm. for some people, not for everyone. Right. <laughs> uh, there's still a lot of difficulties here, but it does. I think American higher education, I think I mentioned that the other time, is one of the still good products that America makes. Yeah. Provided that we don't destroy it you know, which we may be in the process of. Uh, but educationally and intellectually and, you know, practically, there's still more opportunities here than they are in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I like well, that you, yeah. Let's I, change I, it. <laughs> I, I agree. And I think my next question uh, comes up from what you said. What could we do to keep the American education system um, at a good point, what well, what will not destroy it? <laughs> well, I think what's even more important is to say, how can we improve Greek education by using some of the things that we've learned from the American experiment? Right. And that seems to be, to me, perhaps the most serious long-term problem that Greece faces long term. I mean, there are economic problems and there are political and social problems, and some of those are, of course, long term. But education is extraordinarily complex. And in my view, it can't change by changing a few things in the universities. It has to change from kindergarten up. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to have a very different system of education. We have... Look, it's the only country in the world, Greece, that has two parallel systems of intermediate education, the schools and the frontisteria. Right, right. It is amazing that students have to either, if they can afford, if the parents can afford it, have private lessons or go to an extra school three, four hours every night in order to be able to go to university. Why don't the schools teach the material that the universities <laughs> require? It, it, to me, it's amazing that we have this para-educational system in Greece, which is an immense element in the economy. It's not something that could say, let's stop it tomorrow. <laughs> you know, there are many people who are making a living from that. You right. see. And you can't just say, I stop it. It is an extremely difficult 
and complex political decision making that has to go into it. But it has to change from the very beginning. The whole idea of what it is to teach has to change. The idea that students and teachers are both subject to evaluation. For example, I can't understand why people are so much against evaluation. The only reason I can imagine is that they don't trust one another, you see. And unfortunately, I think that is the motivating reason for a lot of Greek practices. Mm-hmm. People don't trust one another. So, you know, everything has to be done by lottery so that you don't put your friends on the committee and so on and so forth. All that has to change. And I'm not saying that America is perfect. It has, or even, I'm not even saying that American education is perfect. But boy, if the things that it does or can do well are things that we should learn how to do, or at least we should learn how we could do them if we had to. Uh, I I always have been saying that. People have been asking me, because I did high school here um, um, starting 10th grade, and people have been asking me, what's how do you see the difference between Greek and American education? And I'm like, you have no idea um, how different it is. You'll be shocked. Um, yeah, it, it really is, but it also is different because you probably went to a pretty good school. They are pretty bad schools in America. Too. I, I, I was fortunate, yes. I, yeah. I, 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 I will say that. I was fortunate to go to an, to an incredible school. There you are. You know, because, you know, the, you know, when the war in Iraq was going on, right, 80% of Americans didn't know where it was. Right. You know, so, you know, that shows that some part of a, a lower education, or primary and secondary education, are not what they should be. But there are great schools here. Uh, and it makes a difference. In Greece, education is geared to get you to the university. And what this involves is a tremendous amount of learning by rote, memorizing, learning tricks. That's not what education should be. And that's something that's being discussed now. I mean, I'm particularly interested in the teaching of ancient Greek and Latin, because that was something that I, but everything. I mean, you know, I remember what I learned in my under, my, 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 my high school physics class. What I learned is one thing I learned. If you want to check if your electric iron is hot or not, if this is the iron, you want to check if it's hot, do it like this, because if there is a short circuit, right? your hand will spasm and move away. If you do it that way, and there's a short circuit, you'll grab it and burn yourself even worse. Now that's not, (laughs) I wish I had learned more than that. Right. Uh, And I I, I think the example you brought um, for the ancient Greek, um, I personally, despised it when i did it well of course you would why wouldn't you but when i came to the states it was something that just came out of me and i started loving it and now that's the discipline that i'm in i study uh, byzantine history something that if i was in greece i would never have thought of exactly so interesting exactly and it's terrible we have this incredible intellectual social history right we could do so much with it And what we do is we turn people against it. We turn people off. So on the one hand, we are all so proud and this and then the other that we from classical Greece. On the other hand, we hate them because we are taught them in such a bad way that they are the the worst part of our education. 
Isn't that a ridiculous situation? At least drop one of the two. Either mm-hmm. drop the their ideal or drop the bad education. They can't have them both at the same time. Yeah. Are you hopeful when it comes to this subject? Well, and I talk to you, I'm hopeful, you know, because I see there are young people who care about those things and who will try to make a difference. On the other hand, you know, when I see what, you know, a, a two generations of uh, education ministers have done uh, to Greece, they have uh, done nothing. Uh, and even, even this new law that has passed now, complex and all that, it really has extremely difficult parts. And ultimately, it doesn't really change anything because it doesn't change the attitude of anyone. Of course, you can't change that by law. That's the other thing. So it's a very complex social problem that needs to be discussed by everyone who's involved. It can't be done by a 400-page or 400-article law. You know, you can't do it that way. It never works. (laughs) And the more things you have, the more ways there are to cheat, the more reasons there are, and the more ways there are. Uh, You know, every time, you know, you say, and this has to happen, somebody will find a way not to do it. So you'll write another law and then find another way. And, you know, what you do is making making it so that nobody understands the law. And yeah. we Greeks sometimes like to go aside from the law. So it's, it's very interesting. <laughs> well, look, I found out that, you know, in order to get money to go to a conference, an academic has to get approval by, I don't know how many levels, right? It takes months. You need 600 euro to go to a conference. If you have it, you'll pay it. And if you don't have it, you'll cheat. Yeah. Right. You know, oh, it's not man. a great uh, line to, to end this uh, conversation. No, no. With, but... I, again, I, I was about to say this conversation is opening up to uh, a pit of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think we came to an end um, uh, of a very productive conversation that well, went glad, from yeah. so many different levels and, 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 and topics that I really enjoyed it. Um, I guess our closing question for you, it's a fun one. Um, in a perfect setting, where would you go for dinner? Who would you invite any person in the world? What will be served and what music uh, will be played in the background? Well, where the answer is in Greece. More specifically, by the sea. Or in a very good place where you can get terrific lamb and meat. Either one. But Greek food, anyway. This, No question about that. Now, whom I would have? That's very difficult. I would have Montaigne. I would have Oscar Wilde. Mm. Great conversation. Right. I would have Jean d'Arc. Jean d'Arc. I'd like to know what moved her and what she was like, but I think that might be a difficult table. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, it'll be interesting because Montaigne was, you know, involved in the wars of, uh, you know, the religious wars. And she, of course, was religious. So it'd be interesting to see how they did. I sometimes think I should have Socrates. 
around, but then he'd make me very uncomfortable with all those questions he always asked. <laughs> <laughs> and would I have anybody else? Uh, uh, I don't know, because, you know, I'd love to have Proust, but I don't know what Proust was like as a conversationalist, right? I mean, you know, he's a great writer, but would he talk? I don't know. Um, anyway, it, it would probably be a bunch of intellectuals, you know, uh, but also I'd have my best friend, Tom, as well. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, you, you need that support. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be able to do it by myself, but, you know, I, I wouldn't like it to be a large one. I'd like to be, you know, five or six people so we could really have a, a talk. Uh, and these, most of these people are good talkers. You know, and good what drinkers. about music? Oh, music. Well, that depends. Uh, that depends on my guests to some extent. But I would like to have a combination of classical music, uh, including some opera. And then I would also, at some point, probably with a dessert, have a little Chadzidakis and Theodorakis. Uh, nice way to close the night. <laughs> towards the end, yeah. I think we, we would do that. Um, and, you know, before that, we'd have a little Mozart, uh, you know, mostly Mozart, I'd say, uh, for dinner. <laughs> Sounds like an interesting table. <laughs> but not divertimenti. We'll have more serious stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Well... Dr. Nehamas, uh, I it was a pleasure. And you can come too. Thank you so much. I appreciate this conversation. Well, it was a pleasure. I hope you have a great night. Um, Thank you very and, much, Eva. Um, Zarkalas and Alexandros Nehamas for this podcast, Aristia in 30 Minutes, where experts talk about excellence.